Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today we have part 23 in our series on the Gospel of John. Today's message is entitled, The Agenda and Authority of Christ. We're going to be asking the question today, are we trying to fit Jesus into our own agendas? Are we ready to surrender all that we have, all we are, to Him and His agenda to be a part of what He's doing in the world? Lots of application for the real world today as we look at this uh, text from John chapter 7, verses 10 through 18. Just a quick note, uh, this service is our last service that we're having in our existing building as we head over to our new building on uh, next week. So if you come to our church, uh, visit us at 525 East Boston Street. That's across the back parking lot from our current building, which will continue to house our children's ministry. More information online at northshorevineyard.org. Well, let's head to the talk. Thanks for listening. We come to part 23 of our series on the Gospel of John that we began back in December of last year. And we are today finding ourselves at John chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. Picking up in verse 10. But when Jesus' brothers had gone to the festival, then he himself went up, not openly, but so to speak, in secret. The Judeans were looking for him at the feast. Where is he, they were saying. There was considerable dispute about him among the crowds. He's a good man, some were saying. No, he isn't, others would would reply. He's deceiving the people. But nobody dared speak about him openly for fear of the Judeans. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Judeans were astonished. Where does this fellow get all this learning from? They asked. He's never been trained. My teaching isn't my own, replied Jesus. It comes from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, they will know whether his teaching is from God or whether I'm just speaking on my own account. Anyone who speaks on his own behalf is trying to establish his own reputation. But if what he is interested in is the reputation of the one who sent him, then he is true and there is no falsehood in him. Lord Jesus, this morning we pray that our hearts would be open to see you. Uh, God, that you would shine your light and and, and bring correction where is needed, God, and uh, bring us into freedom that only your truth can bring. Amen. Well, before we get into this, I'm going to do a little recap of the message a couple of weeks ago, that the verses leading up to this, that will give us a little bit of a, a context for what's going on here. Um, this is, as I said a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is talking to his brothers, and his brothers say, Jesus, man, what you're doing is great. All these miracles, all this teaching, but you're doing this in, in Galilee, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you want to get famous, this is a bad place to do it. It's kind of like Covington. You know, if, you, if you're trying to make it big, you don't come to the North Shore, right? You, you go to New Orleans. You go to New York. You go to L.A. Jesus, if you really want to get famous, head up to Jerusalem in the middle of this festival and people can, can see the things that you're doing. And Jesus tells his brothers, he said, look, my time hasn't come yet. And so I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, what is the time of Jesus? Well, the time of Jesus is going to be the Passover a few months down the road. There were three major festivals that the Jewish people uh, observed. One was Passover, 
and Pentecost, uh, the, the festival of first fruits in, in the spring. And then in the fall, there was the festival of tabernacles. And this is where people would make little, they would do a pilgrimage to uh, Jerusalem and they would construct these little shelters and they would reenact kind of uh, remembering God's provision for them in the Exodus when God brought them from Egypt to the promised land. And so that's the festival that was going on in, in, in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, look, my time isn't about the festival of tabernacles. His time is going to be the Passover. And I mentioned how Jesus' whole ministry has a Passover shape to it. Because Passover is the week where Jesus is going to go to the cross. And he sees that coming. That's why he came. Jesus is the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the whole world. That's his time. And that's the, 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 the thing that shapes his ministry. It has a, a, a cross shape to it, a, a Passover shape. And the Passover, it, it, from this perspective, speaks of God stepping into our world, taking our sins upon him, laying his life down, because both, both for his friends and his enemies. God showing his love to humanity to free them. And so we find out that while his brothers, they believed in Jesus in one sense, it says that they didn't believe him. And, and that was kind of an interesting passage because they're encouraging Jesus in his ministry, but it said that they didn't believe him. What did that mean? Well, they believed him at one level. I, I find that there's not too many people that uh, are opposed to Jesus, the moral teacher. You know, you can find anybody in the media, everybody. If you're going to run for president, you have to say something good about Jesus, right? <laughs> in this country. Uh, Everybody has, believes in Jesus as, as, as a good miracle worker. That's fine. Jesus that heals. Jesus that teaches. Great. But Jesus' own brothers weren't, weren't willing to actually follow him as the Messiah. They weren't ready to do that. They weren't believing him in the sense of actually taking him up on what he was saying. And so it says that Jesus, at the end of that passage, it says Jesus told his brothers, I'm not going to the festival of tabernacles. And it says he stayed in Galilee. Then we find out in this passage that Jesus decides to go up. But this time he's going up kind of in secret, incognito. He's not making much of fuss. Uh, and, and he goes to, to Jerusalem in the middle of this festival. And he goes right to the temple and stands up in the temple and he begins to teach. And these people are amazed by what he's saying. He teaches with such clarity, such authority, but his teaching isn't like anybody else. They're like, where did this guy come from? <laughs> where did he get his learning, his teaching, this wisdom? How did he get this stuff? You know, Dina, she grew up in Faraday, Louisiana. Anybody know where that is? Faraday. Um, lovely place. And... Um, when she went to SLU years ago, when, uh, as a freshman in college, uh, she had a pretty thick accent. And she actually, she was a communications major, so she actually took some classes on voice and diction so she could lose her accent. And uh, she did pretty good with that. Occasionally, her accent comes out when she's mad at me. <laughs> Chris, man! No. Uh, <laughs> I uh, know, I'm in trouble now. Uh, but she changed her, her she, she, she worked on changing her accent because people were kind of making fun of her. And that's what we see in the media today. When anybody, it doesn't matter how educated you are, if you have a southern accent and you get on one of these talk shows on TV, people from New York and, and L.A., they're going to kind of, 
you know, laugh like you, you, you sound uneducated to the metropolitan uppity, up-to-do people, you know, in the big cities. Um, you don't talk like you're from around here. And uh, Jesus, when he went to the temple, growing up on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, kind of like growing up on the north shore of uh, Pontchartrain, there's some people that talk a little bit different from folks in the city. Although folks in New Orleans, they talk a little bit different than folks everywhere else too. So they don't have a whole lot of room to uh, criticize. But it would be obvious when Jesus got up to speak, his accent would betray him. His mannerisms, even the disciples. It's interesting if you look in the book of Acts, Acts 13, Peter and John have been teaching and they get the same kind of accusations leveled against them. It says in verse 13 of Acts 4, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. And they were astonished. They realized they had been with Jesus. Jesus' own disciples, none of them were, these weren't the best and the brightest. These were just, you know, regular old guys, fishermen. They, they hadn't gone to seminary. And Jesus hadn't gone to seminary either because he grew up in Galilee. The Galilee wasn't the place you go to get a, a Ph.D. in religion. It's the place you go to learn how to fish. And uh, Jesus comes in, his, his accent gives him away. They're like, we can tell that you're not from around here. <laughs> Uh, where did you come about this teaching? How did you get so smart? Well, Jesus' wisdom came from another place. You know, we sang a song this morning. The reason I wanted to sing it, Who You Are, that, that, that Jesus didn't just talk about wisdom in an abstract sense. He didn't just have theories on what was right. Jesus was wisdom. He, he was the embodiment of what wisdom was and truth and love. He, he, he was the embodiment of it. If we go back to the beginning of John, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, the, the Word of God that created the whole universe, everything in it steps into our world, taking on flesh and blood. He is the wisdom of God. So if you want to know what wisdom is, look at Jesus. He's it, embodied in the flesh. But also, uh, there's something about Jesus, his, his whole life and ministry. He's, he's learning what to say by the relationship that he has with God. He, he, he's getting it by the very Spirit of God. He's, he's a, a, a human being indwelt by the Spirit of God. He's God and, and, and man. But when he speaks, he speaks out of what the Father is telling him. There's always this constant relationship. And so what he says comes from another place. Next, we have kind of a, a few words on, on his agenda. Verse 16 says, my teaching isn't my own. It comes from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, they will know whether or not this teaching is from God or whether I speak on my own account. You know, the Pharisees, one of the, the refrains that you see all throughout the gospel by the Pharisees and actually by just a lot of people that were following Jesus is, show us a sign. Show us a sign that you're, you're, you're the Messiah. And this is an interesting thing because if we go back to John chapter 2, one of the first things Jesus did in his ministry, as recorded by John, was he went to the temple in Jerusalem and he cleansed it. He, he ran out the money changers and the animals. 
Now, if you were here back in December, a little recap from back then, I said that that was a messianic act. That's what a lot of people were expecting the Messiah to do. When the Messiah, the true Messiah, he would come into Jerusalem, he would cleanse the temple as one of his first things. Jesus gets finished cleansing the temple. John says that was one of the first signs of of his ministry. And then no sooner has he done that, people start asking, show us a sign. (laughs) Jesus is like, that was the sign. You missed it. Jesus feeds the 5,000 out in the wilderness, uh, you know, giving them, you know, multiplying the loaves and fishes, feeds 5,000. And, and that same crowd of people just shortly after say, show us a sign. Jesus is like, that was a, what, that thing I did out there, making lunch for thousands of people out of a sack. That was the sign that I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who will take care of you in the wilderness. You see it? But see, that this, this always asking God for a sign, it, it's, it's very much, it reveals that they really were trying to figure out, is this Jesus someone who will back our agenda? Can we fit Jesus in, into to our plans? Is he going to uh, legitimize our prominence, our position, our power? Is he for us? But Jesus isn't there to back their agenda. See, the Pharisees, they had, a lot of historians figured that that the Pharisees had come along the scene probably about 150 to 200 years before the earthly ministry of Jesus. They actually started out as a reform movement uh, to reform Judaism. So they actually had some good intentions. But by the time Jesus is on the scene, these Pharisees, Their whole idea was that if we follow these laws good enough, then God will send the Messiah to get us all, uh, you know, take care of everything. And they were not only trying to follow the hundreds of laws from the Old Testament, they added several hundred more laws on top of that. So by the time Jesus is doing his ministry, their laws, they had laws for everything. And, and instead of helping people to know God, they had built up so many layers of walls that, that nobody had a hope of, of you know, encountering God according to their system unless they were in a club. So they'd become this kind of religious establishment and they were keeping people away from God. Is Jesus on our side? Is he going to back us? We need some more confirmation to see if we can trust him. Show us a sign. You know, I was kind of reminded looking at this that uh, there's a passage. If you go into Joshua chapter 5, the children of Israel, they've been doing the exodus for 40 years, and they celebrated the Passover the, the last time before entering into the promised land. It said the, 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 uh, the manna that, that, that would appear every day. After the Passover, that last Passover, the manna stopped, and it was time to head into the promised land. And they're getting ready to go in and take Jericho. And all of a sudden, Joshua bumps into someone. This is what it says in verse 13. Now, when Joshua was, was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked, What message does my Lord have for his servants? commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for this place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Some Bible scholars think that this is a, uh, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. But I love the question. 
Because it's the question that everybody asked, not just back then, not just in the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. Whose side are you on, God? (laughs) And what is God's answer? Neither. (laughs) What do you mean? God, these are, this is Israel, your chosen people. You've made a covenant with them. How come you're not on their side? Jesus, you know, God's basically saying, my agenda is not your agenda. Let's not confuse the two. I'm going to use you, but for my agenda. Have you noticed that people want to get God on their side a lot today or like to pretend that he is? Anybody ever noticed? It's election time, of course. Yeah, in, in America, I, I've met plenty of Christians over the years. A very popular belief in this country is that, that God is on the side of America. God, God is, is as patriotic as anybody else for America. That God likes America more than he likes Mexico or Saudi Arabia. That, that we're, we're somehow God's chosen people. Or that God likes Israel more than Palestine. Or that God likes a certain political party more than he likes the other political party. Or that God likes Chick-fil-A more than he likes Starbucks. <laughs> or that God, I've even heard people take it to the extent of God, God likes vegetarians more than, than meat eaters. I don't believe that for a second. I'm resistant to that. <laughs> But these kinds of thinking, what are they? They're, they're human beings trying to squish Jesus into their own agenda. Jesus is like this. He's on our side. We have the moral high ground. And it was the same in Jesus' day. But, but just like in Joshua, God's not on the side of the Republicans or the Democrats or America He's not playing the political games or the nationalistic, nationalistic games of countries. He's not in that. He's got his own agenda. And the question isn't, can we get Jesus into our little agenda, but can we give up our agenda and step into his agenda? Can we step into what he's doing? It's interesting what Jesus says in here. He says that... Uh, you know, those who want to do the will of, of God, they're going to know that what I'm saying is true. You know, if you really want to know, if you're really looking after God, you're going to know that what I say is true. And, and this is an interesting statement when you look at the people that responded to Jesus, right? The ones who figured it all out, who thought God was on their side, were the last people to respond. And overwhelmingly, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, you know, teachers of the law... They didn't respond to Jesus favorably. It was the ones who, who, who would have been so outcast in that society that responded to Jesus. I think Jim Holland last week talked about a, a certain uh, tax collector. But, you know, Jesus called a tax collector into his inner circle. A guy by the name of Matthew. I, I, I suspect most folks in here aren't real fond of the IRS probably a good assumption. IRS agents <laughs> aren't real popular in our country, but but understand what we got is very tame compared to what IRS agents were back then. IRS agents back then were kind of a cross between an IRS agent, I mean tax collectors were kind of kind of a cross between an IRS agent and and somebody in the mob. They were corrupt. They were they were hated because these people were were causing their fellow Jewish people to suffer financial hardship and they were skimming off the top 
And so they were living a lavish lifestyle themselves. And then they were giving the rest of the money to a pagan empire that was dominating the Jewish people. Can you see how they were hated? They were seen as, as corrupt, as traitors. And Jesus comes up to this guy, Matthew, who's collecting taxes. He says, I want you to step into my inner circle and follow me. And what does Matthew do? He just leaves it all behind. He follows Jesus. Then he throws a party and invites Jesus there and invites all his corrupt friends. And many of them respond to Jesus. What's that show me? It shows me that Matthew, even though he was in the midst of a very immoral lifestyle, he really did want God. He probably just didn't think God wanted him. There's a Samaritan woman we talked about in John chapter 4. Samaritan, a Samaritan woman would be about as hated as a tax collector, maybe even more so in that society. These were the strikes that she had against her. Number one, she was a woman. Women were not looked at favorably. That they didn't have. A, there was no equal rights back then. Uh, she was a woman. She was the wrong gender. She was a Samaritan. That the Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people. They were seen as kind of half-breeds, you know. Her religion wasn't the right religion. The Samaritan religion, it kind of borrowed from Judaism, but they threw all kinds of other things in. They just kind of made up their own thing. She was the wrong, wrong sex, the wrong religion, the wrong race. And not only that, she was living an immoral lifestyle. She was on her, her fifth adulterous relationship. Actually, when Jesus encounters her at the well... She was probably out at the well in the middle of the day because nobody would have been at the well in the middle of the day. She was probably ostracized by her own people. And yet Jesus, he comes up to her and goes, Honey, you're looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> he says, you're, 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 you're trying to satisfy the longing of your soul with all these different things. But if you drink the water that I have for you, it's going to well up to, to, to everlasting life. What I give will truly satisfy the, the, the innermost part of you. You're not going to find it in this relationship, in this relationship. You're going to only find it for me. And this Samaritan woman, how she responds, she, she, she opens up her heart to Jesus. She responds. That shows me that the Samaritan woman, just like Matthew the tax collector, even though they were mired in sin in, in something that, 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 was, that, that seemed far, far away from God, they were still looking for God. But the Pharisees, the scribes, the ones who thought they had God, they didn't, they didn't know God at all. They weren't even hungry for God, really, when you got down to it. Because Jesus says, if you're really hungry for God, you're going you're gonna to know that what I'm saying is true. If you're just content with your own agenda, then you're going to miss it. You're going to keep seeking signs. Actually, Jesus says at one point, he says, a perverse generation keeps seeking, seeking signs. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? It's, it's the sign of the resurrection. I'm going to be buried in the ground and, 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 and rise three days later. The resurrection is the last sign you're going to get. If you miss that sign, <laughs> bad news. The ones who think they've got the, the market cornered on God are the, the last ones to really find God. The ones who seem so far away from God, many of them looking to, to relationships, money, power, different things, that, 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 that their life is kind of sidetracked by all that. Many of those people are genuinely actually looking for God. And when they find Jesus, they respond to Him. Th this ought to give us a little pause. <laughs> you know, sometimes... 
Christians can be the most arrogant, condescending, judgmental people. We look at people like, oh, that, that person is, is so messed up. They're, they're so involved in so many immoral things. They couldn't, couldn't want God. And we reinforce to them that God doesn't like them. We, we reinforce the vo- voices that they probably have in their own head saying, God would never take me. I'm damaged goods. He doesn't want someone that's into all these things. We reinforce that just like the Pharisees would. When many of these people are sincerely wanting God, they just don't know how to get there. They don't even know if God would really, truly accept them. Are we going to be a part of that or be a part of the Jesus who welcomes the worst cases in? I thank God he welcomes the worst cases in. Anybody else with me? Verse 18, Jesus says, Anyone who speaks on his own behalf is trying to establish his own reputation. But if what he's interested in is the reputation of the one who sent, them, sent him, then he is true, and there's no falsehood in him. I remember about, in the, I don't know, it's probably six or seven months after Katrina, the, the church on the South Shore that I was a part of, we were doing all kind of stuff in the community to, to help you know, rebuild stuff in Kenner and, and New Orleans. And, and a friend of mine lived in a neighborhood in Gentilly and his house had, had been pretty damaged, pretty bad. And, uh, he, as we were helping him rebuild his own house, he, uh, he really had a heart to help his neighborhood come back. So there was a park that was there that, you know, any of y'all that were in New Orleans, the parks weren't exactly taken care of very well for, for a while. Uh, so there was this park that was that had been flooded. You know, the, the equipment was all rusted. It was all overgrown. And so he's like, maybe we can get a crew of people out here to work on this park and, and make it nice again so that families will want to return. And so we got together a group from our church, and he got together people from his neighborhood. And it ap- actually happened to be when Starbucks was having their, their national leaders convention down here. So Starbucks actually said that one day during their convention, they were going to send out all their managers and uh, into the community to do a day of community service. So we had a group of people from Starbucks. They didn't bring any coffee though. So, but uh, <laughs> of course, it's very hot. So uh, might not have been the best thing. But we all get out there to, to start uh, taking care of this park. Some people are painting playground equipment. Some people are trimming trees. And, and all of a sudden, a local politician shows up who was running for mayor at the time. And it was uncanny, his, his timing. He got there about five minutes before the media showed up. And I think somebody sprayed some water on his forehead. And he, he, gra- <laughs> he, grabs a, he grabs a paintbrush and, and starts painting the swing set. And at first I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. And, and, and the cameras are all on him. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm you know, whatever. He's talking about how he believes in the community coming back. Media was there for like 15 minutes. They get in there, back in their news truck, and they take off. And within five minutes, he's gone. <laughs> now, I don't want to be judgmental. I can't help it though. Uh, no. <laughs> why are we so, why are we so cynical about politics? Well, it's because things like that, I, you know, in all honesty, I bet the guy really does love new Orleans and wants to see new Orleans helped. But when you do something like that, it doesn't help reinforce that it kind of comes across like you're just painting this swing set so that they can take a picture of you painting the swing set so that you can get more people to vote for you so that you can maintain your grip on power so that you can further your own agenda. 
mean, honestly, that, that's... It's, it's so hard in a political year. You, we, we're so used to just kind of hearing promises, people telling us what you want to hear, uh, showing you things you want to see. And then once they get power, they just seem to be in it for themselves so often. They forget about actually serving people. <laughs> and then they, it, it all becomes about enriching their own careers. Jesus, he says, look, look at my life and my ministry I'm obviously not in this for my own gain. <laughs> Jesus had a, a, a habit of shunning the crowds. Everything, every time things looked like they were going to take off, like this thing was really going to take over, like people wanted to make him king, right in the middle of the crowds doing that, he says, he steps away. They can't find him. When Jesus' own brothers want him to, to, to start trying to get famous, he shuns them. Jesus had this habit of, 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 of healing people. And then when the crowds would all start showing up and everything, right in the middle of the height of it, he would disappear. He shunned the crowds. The other thing is that Jesus, just by nature of actually being in Jerusalem, in the midst of a festival, shows that he's not there on his own agenda because there was one place in the world where people wanted to kill Jesus, and that was Jerusalem. There are people that were very angry with him. And Jesus steps right into the middle of the storm. Jesus is saying, look, if I'm, if I'm here on my own agenda, it would all be, I would do this back in Galilee where I'm popular, where people are cool with me. I'd be, I'd be trying to uh, get rich off of this thing. And Jesus, Jesus isn't doing any of that. He says, I'm, I'm only, my only agenda is him who sent me. I'm only listening to what the Father's saying and doing what He's doing. He has me here in the middle of this festival. I'm not speaking for my own power, my own prominence, my own enrichment. I'm doing this for the Father. Jesus isn't playing the same power game that the world plays, and this is evidenced by how He does His ministry. See, what we see with Jesus is that his authority transcends earthly systems and structures. Wherever Jesus goes becomes a sacred space. Wherever Jesus goes becomes a place where heaven and earth intersect. Whether it's talking to a Samaritan woman by a well in the middle of the day, whether it's sitting at Matthew's house eating dinner with a bunch of corrupt sinners, whether it's speaking out on a boat to the crowds on a hill, or whether it's speaking in the temple, wherever Jesus goes becomes a place, a sacred space, becomes a connection point between heaven and earth. And it's on this note that I would like to kind of uh, take a little inspiration from, from what we see here in John today for our church, for where we're going. I tell you, I'm excited that we got a new building. I'm excited that, that next week, we're going to have, I, we may not have all the bells and whistles next week, but I'm, I'm excited we're going to have more space. I'm excited that our band isn't going to have to play in a small hallway anymore. <laughs> we're going to have an actual stage. I'm excited that we're going to be on Boston Street where we're, we're stepping right kind of into the middle of things. And we can participate. We can, you know, when they do the art things, we're, we're, the place we're in was an art gallery. So, you know, we're, we're suited for, for doing things like that. I, I'm, I'm excited about the ways that we can connect with our community. But this excitement that I have, it's, it's really kind of the excitement that I had when Dina and I uh, bought a home in Abita Springs last year. 
It's the excitement of we're moving into a new place. You know, last year, before we, we bought our home in Abita Springs, we, we lived in this little, we rented a place initially, and, and our living room was so, so small we couldn't even have a small group, uh, unless it was less than five people. <laughs> so we were, we were happy to, to move into a new home where we had a little space, and since we moved in there, I've been able to convert part of the garage into an office so I, I can work at home sometimes, and, and we've been able to host a small group at our house that's more than five people, and uh, I love having folks home for dinner. But, but let me tell you, the, the thing that... What? What? Oh, certain folks over for dinner. <laughs> we got to discriminate a little, Barry. <laughs> You've come over for dinner once, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but you know, the thing that makes our house special is not the, the, the actual structure itself. It's, it's what inhabits the house, right? It's our family. To illustrate this, I want to say this. You know, when, when Dina and I, we, we celebrate our uh, 15th wedding, wedding anniversary this coming Thursday. We celebrated actually last night. Got an early start on it. But in the 15 years that we've been married, we've lived in all kinds of places. One of the places we lived early on when Tevi was about two years old was um, uh, in Hammond. It was this converted barn. And, uh, live, you know, living in a place like that is great because when Dina comes in, it's like, look at all this stuff on the floor. What do you think? You're living in a barn? Yeah. It's good if you can arrange that. Uh, we lived in this, this converted barn, but it had a problem. Every time it rained, it had this tin roof and it had holes all in it, kind of like our roof over there. And I'd have to get up in the loft place where they would store the hay and, and put buckets out everywhere. And I couldn't stop it with 20 buckets. There was always uh, something leaking in our house. And from that, we moved into this other place in downtown Hammond. They had this old school building. Ham and Eastside Elementary building, and they converted it into some apartments for artists and musicians. And so that was pretty cool. So we move in there. The only problem is it was probably only about 500 square foot, and it was one room, just one kind of big room. It was, had cypress floors, big ceilings. It, was, it had a lot of character, just not a lot of space. And so we moved into that. We, at that time, we only had Tevia, and she was, she was probably about three years old, three and a half years old at the time. And uh, so she didn't have her own room. So what we did, we, she had this little children's tent, play tent. And so that became a room. We set that up over on the side. And, uh, and she loved that. I mean, it's pretty cool when you're a kid to just get to, to live in a tent. So, so, uh, so she, she and, and it was funny, she would get mad at us sometimes. She'd go in that tent and pull the flaps. <laughs> but after that, we moved to Kenner, and we had an apartment in Kenner for a few years until Katrina happened. When Katrina happened, our apartment flooded. And we, we found ourselves without a home, uh, you know, a house or apartment or anything for about three and a half months. And so for those three and a half months, we, we lived in about seven different places. We, we initially started at a garage apartment over in Houston. Oh, we stayed a few places before that with a few friends. And then we stayed in somebody's pool cabana, you know, in Kenner. They had a, uh, and, and the kids, you know, it's like a, a big camp out for the kids. Uh, they were always sleeping on the floors. Um, but we lived in all kinds of different places. And, and, and the point that I want to say with all this is that, that our family transcended the shells that we inhabited. You know, the, the thing that made any of those places special is that, that wherever we were, it was home. It might be home for a few weeks. 
might be home for a few days, but it was home because we were there. Our family brought the substance to those places. The reality is, you, if you have a family that's, that's fallen apart, a brand new awesome house isn't going to help your family any. Many times a brand new house is going to exacerbate things and make problems worse. As we get ready to, to move into this new building, I'm thrilled for the opportunities that this building opens up to us. But in a sense, this building's just kind of a tool for what we're going to do. I, I find a lot of musicians. Do we have any uh, Rush fans in here? Okay. Uh, the band Rush, the, the, they have this drummer named Neil Peart. Anybody know who Neil Peart is? Yes, yes. Uh, he's probably one of the greatest rock and roll drummers. And Neil Peart is probably responsible for, for more drum sales in the United States than anybody else. He has this, he's, he's an incredible drummer, but he has this just huge kit, you know. And I see drummers all the time that they watch Rush and that oh, Neil Peart, man, I want to play like that. So they go to the music store and they buy these just enormous drum sets. <laughs> and it's, you know, like... It, 20 toms and, and 15 cymbals. And they think, if I get a drum set like that, I'm going to sound like Neil Peart. And it doesn't work. The truth is, Neil Peart could play on a paint bucket and some pots and pans, and it would sound awesome. <laughs> the magic is not in the instrument. I see a lot of, music, a lot of guitar players. They find out, oh, man, this is the, the guitar that, that uh, Eric Clapton plays. on. I've got to get that, and then I'll sound like Eric Clapton. It doesn't work. The reason that, that Eric Clapton sounds good or Neil Peart sounds good or whoever, what other amazing musician is because they've dedicated their life to a, a, the discipline of becoming a better musician. They've practiced. They've, they've lived a whole life. And so whether, if they get a bad instrument, they can make a bad instrument sound good. But if they get a good instrument, it's going to sound a lot better. I say all that because this building we're moving into, it's a good instrument. It's a better instrument than we, what we got right now. But what excites me is not the building itself. I mean, I am excited. But what I'm really excited about is the substance that we bring to it. I'm excited that in the same way during Katrina when we found out there was more to our family than a, than a house, that there's more to this church than a building. I'm excited when I look at the things that God is doing and the relationships with people here, that folks are getting to know Christ at a deeper level, that folks are, are, are opening up their hearts to one another, that we're growing as a, as, as a family here. So I'm looking forward to the days ahead as, as we move in there. But, you know, truth is, this has happened in a lot of places. It's actually happened in Kenner. They've outlawed churches meeting in commercial spaces. Yeah, it happened years ago. And uh, that could happen in Covington. They could say, no churches in, in, in uh, commercial spaces. And so if that happened, we'd, we'd lose both of our buildings. But I'm confident that, that wherever we are, we are the church. <laughs> that wherever we go, we are the people of God, the family of God. And so as excited as I am about this, I just know that our temptation, I've seen this with so many churches, that the temptation is to look at the building itself as, this is magical, this is, this is amazing, it's going to solve all the problems. It's not. It's going to be a cooler place to meet, hopefully. <laughs> Colder. <laughs> but hopefully like our house that we got into Beta Springs it just helps us to thrive more as the people of God 
you know, our house in Avita Springs, it has helped our family to actually flourish. It's not our family, but it helps aid that in. So I think looking at the words of Jesus today, just that, that, that we, we, we continue to remind ourselves that we're here not to take over Covington, not to, 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 to take our own agenda, but we're here to love people into the kingdom. We're, we're here to love, to, to live out the ways of Jesus and to continue to open our hearts to what he's saying and what he's doing. Amen? Amen. Well, let's stand on that note and have our last uh, closing prayer in here. And uh, they're going to tell me if we raise enough money on that offering. And we're, uh, if not, we're going to pass it back around. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Jesus, this morning, we ask that we would have no other agenda than what you are doing, Lord. Lord, we pray that, Lord, any areas where we've tried to squeeze you in into our own agenda, God, that, that we'd let go. We, we give you all that we are, all that we have. Lord, we pray that our eyes would be open to what you're doing in relationships around us and our jobs and our families with our neighbors. Lord, that even what we see with you, that everywhere we go could be a sacred space. We could, we could truly not enter into the lives of others with our own agendas to change them, but just to see what you're doing and come alongside that. Give us eyes to see that, ears to hear what you're saying. And Lord, I just pray, pray a blessing on our church as we close one chapter and we step into a new chapter. I pray that the days ahead, even in this new place, uh, there would be many more days of introducing people to you. Lord, many more days of growing into your nature. We pray that you would build us as a community. In Jesus' name, amen.